Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchanges World News Roundup for Saturday, January 27th, and Sunday, January 28th, 2024. Uh, there are a number of anniversaries this week. On January 27th, 1944, the Soviet Red Army finally ended the 872-day siege of Leningrad by driving off the last German forces still remaining in the vicinity of that city. Uh, whether you go by the highest estimates, which put the death toll somewhere north of 5 million, or the lowest, which put it around 1.2 million, or somewhere in between, Leningrad was one of the longest and deadliest military encounters in recorded history. Uh, exactly one year later, on January 27, 1945, the Red Army liberated the Nazi concentration extermination camp complex at Auschwitz in occupied Poland. The Nazis ex executed some 1.1 million people at Auschwitz between 1940 and 1945, most of them Jews. Uh, in 2005, the United Nations General Assembly designated January 27th as International Holocaust Remembrance Day. On January 27, 1973, the United States, North Vietnam, South Vietnam, and the South Vietnamese Provisional Revolutionary Government all signed the Paris Peace Accords, marking the end of the Vietnam War. The deal called for the withdrawal of U.S. forces from Vietnam and the imposition of a ceasefire, plus the withdrawal of all foreign forces from Laos and Cambodia. The ceasefire failed almost immediately, but the U.S. was in no position to stop the eventual fall of South Vietnam in 1975. On January 28, 1077, Holy Roman Emperor Henry IV's humiliating journey to the castle of Canossa to beg forgiveness from Pope Gregory VII ended when the Pope finally agreed to grant him an audience. Henry's penitence was a, a highlight of the investiture controversy during which the Emperor and the Pope got crosswise over the issue of which of them should have final say over the appointment of bishops in imperial cities. It wouldn't be resolved until the Concordat of Worms in 1122, which affirmed the Church's right to choose its own officials, but allowed imperial authorities to have some influence on the process. And on January 28, 1846, a British East India Company army under Sir Harry Smith defeated a somewhat larger Sikh force at the Battle of Aliwal. Uh, the Sikhs lost somewhere around 2,000 men, many in a disorganized retreat after the British captured the village of Aliwal and were able to attack the Sikh line from two directions. The victory is seen as crucial to the British victory in the 1845-1846 First Anglo-Sikh War because it eliminated a Sikh threat to the East EIC's supply lines and allowed its main army to undertake the decisive offensive that brought the conflict to an end. On to the news. We start in the Middle East in Israel-Palestine, where according to the New York Times, American-led negotiators, I guess the American-led part is a bit of a stretch, but whatever, uh, are continuing to make progress toward a Gaza ceasefire and prisoner exchange deal. CIA Director Bill Burns is in Paris this weekend discussing the issue, or was, I guess by the time you listen to this, uh, discussing the issue with representatives from Egypt, Israel, and Qatar. Uh, the basic contours sound like a synthesis of the two frameworks that have been discussed uh, in recent days, uh, the Israeli government's two-month-and-done ceasefire and Hamas's preferred one-month-and-extendable version. The synthesized proposal calls for an initial 30-day ceasefire during which Hamas would release all women, elderly, and wounded hostages, and the parties would continue negotiating on a 30-day extension during which Hamas would release Israeli soldiers and male civilians. This is from the Times piece. They would, in theory, continue negotiating through that second window on a potential longer-term cessation of hostilities. If those talks fail, as seem li seems likely given that the Israeli government has resisted the idea of ending the conflict, the belief is that the Israeli military, IDF, would not be able to resume its Gaza operation at the same level of intensity because of the two-month layoff. That seems like quite a leap of logic, but far be it from me to question the U.S. officials who have handled this crisis so competently to date. 
What the deal would in theory offer is an extended window in which to try to improve the humanitarian situation in Gaza in ways that could survive the resumption of conflict. Even that is probably a long shot, but even so, uh, two months without fighting is ipso facto better than the alternative, particularly if it also reduces regional tensions. Elsewhere, maybe it is a coincidence that this new momentum toward a ceasefire is being reported in the immediate aftermath of the International Court of Justice ruling on Friday that found plausible the claim that the IDF is committing genocide in Gaza and ordered the Israeli government to improve the territory's humanitarian situation. Or maybe it's not a coincidence. What is definitely not a coincidence is that the Israeli government on Friday accused United Nations Relief and Works Agency employees of participating in the October 7th attacks in southern Israel. That allegation, apparently based on testimony from Palestinian prisoners in Israeli custody, where the likelihood of torture is high, has successfully redirected Western attention away from the ICJ ruling. At last count, at least 10 UNRWA donor nations who support upwards of $700 million of the agency's annual budget have ostentatiously suspended their contributions. None, to my knowledge, have commented substantively on the ICJ ruling. These countries are defunding the UN's Palestinian Relief Organization because of claims that 12 of UNRWA's 13,000 or so Gazan staffers participated in the attacks. UNRWA has already fired nine of them, and a tenth has been confirmed dead. Those who survive this conflict may be prosecuted, assuming there's any legal structure able to take that case. The UN has promised to investigate the Israeli allegations, which at the moment is all it can realistically do because of the ongoing military operation. This move to defund UNRWA right now in the midst of a humanitarian crisis in Gaza has almost certainly been coordinated to A, punish the UN for Friday's court ruling, and B, distract from the implications of that ruling. The ICJ made a point of ordering that steps be taken to improve Gaza's humanitarian situation, and this does exactly the opposite. The word unconscionable comes to mind. Uh, according to the New York Times, one of Hamas's biggest arms suppliers turns out to be the IDF. Gazan fighters are using arms stolen from IDF outposts on October 7th, and militant groups are firing rockets built from the remnants of munitions the IDF has rained down on Gaza in past operations. Using UNRWA as precedent, maybe this means Western governments should stop funding the IDF, too. Uh, potential ceasefire notwithstanding, there's no indication that the ICJ ruling has had any effect on the way the IDF is prosecuting its campaign. There were reports throughout the weekend of intense fighting in Khan Yunus and heavy Israeli airstrikes on Gaza City to the north. The apparent Israeli failure to meaningfully degrade Hamas's tunnel network, as reported by the Wall Street Journal, has allowed militants to filter back into northern Gaza as the IDF's focus has shifted south. There are now reports that the Israeli government has informed its Egyptian counterpart, that it intends to shift the campaign still further south to Rafah and the Philadelphia Corridor along the Gaza-Egypt border. Uh, Cairo has warned that an Israeli move into the border zone could be very bad for a bilateral relationship that is already on shaky ground. Egyptian considerations aside, the question of what all the Palestinians the IDF has now herded into Rafah are supposed to do is so far unanswered. And NBC News reported on Sunday that the Biden administration may actually be thinking about using its leverage to force the Israeli government to change its approach in Gaza. According to this story, the administration, quote, is considering slowing or pausing, end quote, offensive weapons shipments uh, to Israel 
to try to, quote, prod the Israelis to take action, such as opening humanitarian corridors to provide more aid to Palestinian civilians, end quote. That it's taken the administration nearly four months and over 26,000 dead just to get to this milquetoast place is damning, but at least it's something. The administration is allegedly getting more frustrated with the Israeli government, but it can nevertheless be expected to veto the forthcoming attempt to codify that ICJ ruling in a UN Security Council resolution. In Turkey, Islamic State has reportedly claimed responsibility for an attack in which two masked gunmen opened fire inside an Istanbul church during Sunday's mass, killing one person. Uh, this There seems to be some question as to whether this was a targeted killing or whether the attackers had planned a mass shooting. Local officials have suggested that the attackers gun-jammed, prompting them to, free, to flee. Uh, in Syria, local militia fighters killed at least eight IS-aligned militants in southern Syria's Dara province on Sunday, according to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights and Syrian state media. A local Islamic State leader appears to have been among the dead. In Jordan, a drone strike targeting a military outpost known as Tower 22 in northeastern Jordan overnight killed at least three U.S. military personnel and wounded at least 34. Uh, your first question here might be, say, why are there U.S. soldiers stationed at an obscure base on the Jordanian-Syrian border? The reason is that Tower 22 serves as a logistical support base for the U.S. garrison at Tanf in Syria. Uh, they're, in, they're in Syria, uh, ostensibly as part of the anti-Islamic uh, State coalition, but really because squatting on the Iraqi-Syrian border makes them a nuisance to Iran and its regional network. Under the circumstances, it comes as no surprise that suspicion is falling heavily on Iranian-supported militias in Iraq, and I imagine the U.S. military will be taking retaliatory action against one or more of them soon, perhaps by the time you listen to this. In Iran, unspecified gunmen killed nine Pakistani nationals on Saturday in a shooting in the southeastern Iranian city of Saravan. There's been no claim of responsibility. Uh, southeastern Iran recently garnered some attention, perhaps you heard, because of the pre presence of Baluch separatists there. But jihadist militants and criminal traffickers also operate in that area, and there's considerable overlap between uh, all of these categories. The Pakistani government said that it's communicating with Iranian officials with respect to their investigation of this incident. Moving on to Asia in the Philippines, the Philippine military says its soldiers killed at least nine jihadist militants during an operation on Thursday in Lanao del Sur province. An army unit reportedly engaged in a series of clashes against a group of 15 Islamic State-aligned fighters. Among the dead are two suspects in the December 3rd bombing that killed four people during a church service on the campus of Mindanao State University. Uh, authorities say the search for the remaining six fighters is continuing. Elsewhere, the Chinese Coast Guard announced via WeChat late Saturday that it had agreed to, quote, temporary special arrangements, end quote, permitting the Philippine military to resupply its makeshift naval base in the disputed Second Thomas Shoal. The Philippine government, of course, regards the shoal as within its waters, so presumably it would dispute the notion that it needs China's permission to supply that facility. What appears to have happened here is that the Philippine military successfully airdropped supplies to that base last weekend, probably to bypass any potential Chinese sea blockade. And this statement was perhaps a bit of face saving on the part of the Chinese government. In North Korea, the North Korean military test-fired submarine-launched cruise missiles on Sunday, according to state media. The South Korean military had previously reported the launch of several missiles off of North Korea's east coast. 
Pyongyang has pursued the development of nuclear-capable submarine-launched missiles alongside the development of submarines that can actually fire them. Uh, nearly all of its fleet is too old for that sort of thing, but it did unveil what it called a tactical nuclear submarine last year. Uh, it is also still working on developing the kind of smaller nuclear warhead that would be needed for cruise missile deployment. In Africa, starting in Burkina Faso, where the junta running that country, along with the juntas running Mali and Niger, collectively informed the economic community of West African states on Sunday that they're quitting that body, quote-unquote, without delay. All three have been suspended from ECOWAS anyway, pending transitions back to democratic rule that none of them seem in any particular hurry to make. They are instead pursuing their own integration project, the Alliance of Sahel States, which first saw the light of day back in September. Since these are all Francophone countries, I assume the Huntas haven't noticed the English acronym. Uh, in Nigeria, six children were killed in northeastern Nigeria's Borno State on Saturday by an explosive device they had mistaken for scrap metal and were attempting to sell. The bomb was certainly an artifact of the Boko Haram Islamic State West Africa province conflict that has gripped Borno and other parts of Nigeria for nearly 15 years. In South Sudan, intercommunal fighting left at least 52 people dead late Saturday in the disputed Abye region along the Sudanese South Sudanese border. Local officials say the attackers were ethnic Nuer from the uh, from South Sudan's neighboring Warop state, who swarmed through at least three Dinka villages in Abye and also attacked a UN peacekeeping facility. One peacekeeper was among the dead. The reason for the attack is unclear, apart from some vague references to a land dispute. Uh, Abye's status was left undetermined when South Sudan seceded from Sudan in 2011. It's essentially controlled by South Sudan, but efforts to find a legal resolution have proved fleeting. On to Europe in Ukraine, where the Ukrainian Security Service, or SBU, revealed on Saturday that it had discovered a $40 million corruption scheme involving arms purchases by the Ukrainian military. Officials in the Ukrainian Defense Ministry and at an obscure military contractor called Lviv Arsenal are accused of embezzling funds meant for the purchase of mortar shells. The company apparently simply took the money and never provided the product. Uh, corruption remains a huge problem for the Ukrainian government and is so endemic that the defense ministry has been implicated in numerous scandals, even amid what Ukrainian leaders say is an existential war against Russia. Elsewhere, Ukrainian officials are insisting that they have received no credible, verifiable proof that the Russian military transport their forces shot down in western Russia on Wednesday actually contained Ukrainian prisoners of war, as Moscow claimed. Uh, it seems relatives of the 65 POWs supposedly on the aircraft have been unable to identify their loved ones in any of the crash site photos provided by the Russian government. Moscow has not yet indicated whether it intends to repatriate the bodies to Ukraine, which would presumably clear this up. Uh, in Finland, voters headed to the polls on Sunday for the first round of their presidential election, looking for a successor to retiring incumbent Sauli Ninista. Uh, with the votes now counted, former Prime Minister Alexander Stubb of the center-right National Coalition Party has won a narrow victory, taking 27.2% of the vote to 5.8% for former Foreign Minister Pekka Havisto of the Green League. Uh, and this would be a good time for me to apologize to any Finnish speakers listening to this for my mangled pronunciations. Uh, the two men will go to a runoff on February 11th. Uh, recent head-to-head -head polls have tended to favor 
Stubb, uh, Finnish presidents share executive authority with the elected prime minister and cabinet, but they have greater latitude in areas of military and foreign affairs, which is particularly relevant right now, given the war in Ukraine and Finland's recent accession to NATO. In Hungary, uh, European Union member states are set this week to take up the 50 billion euro Ukrainian aid package that Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban blocked at last month's EU summit. Although Hungarian officials have expressed a new openness to the package in recent days, there's still plenty of reason to think that Orban will block it again this time around. So the rest of the gang is considering various ways to punish him for his intransigence should it come to that. According to the Financial Times, one idea under consideration involves threatening to cut off all EU funding for Hungary. The hope is that the threat, which wouldn't require any potentially uncomfortable votes, would so terrify the market that the Hungarian economy would be severely damaged as a result. The EU has used funds as a source of leverage against member states in the past, but this goes beyond that into almost mafia territory. Nice economy you got there to be ashamed if somebody was to wreck it and so forth. Uh, if the financial threat doesn't force Orban to back down, members could invoke Article 7 of the EU treaty, which would suspend Hungary's voting rights for breaching EU principles. Ukraine aside, Orban has certainly breached several stated EU principles over the years, uh, but there seems to be some genuine reluctance to pull on this cord, so I suspect it's viewed as a last resort. Uh, in the Americas, in Venezuela, the Biden administration said on Saturday that it is reviewing its Venezuelan sanctions policy in light of the court ruling on Friday that maintained opposition leader Maria Corina Machado's ban from electoral politics. Uh, we covered that in Friday's newsletter. Machado is the joint opposition candidate to challenge incumbent Nicolas Maduro in this year's presidential election. The Biden administration last year cut a deal with Maduro to relax sanctions on Venezuela in return for assurances that said election would be conducted in a Washington-approved free and fair manner. Uh, Machado's ban presumably violates the deal, though the administration isn't yet ready to pull the plug. And finally, in the United States, Jacobin Stephen Semler questions Joe Biden's stated interest in the safe recovery of Israeli hostages in Gaza. I'll read you the introduction to his piece. On Sunday, January 14th, President Joe Biden gave a statement marking 100 days since October 7th. Nowhere in the statement did Biden mention Palestinians, including the 24,000 killed, 61,000 injured, 1.9 million displaced, or the 2.2 million at risk of famine as a result of Israel's U.S.-backed war in Gaza. Instead, Biden dedicated it to the hostages. Quote, no one should have to endure even one day of what they have gone through, much less a hundred. On this terrible day, I again reaffirm my pledge to all the hostages and their families. We are with you, end quote, the president said. Like that of John Fetterman and other supporters of Israel's military offensive, it's very difficult to read Joe Biden's concern for the hostages as genuine. A president who truly cared about the safety of hostages held in Gaza would presumably not let it be carpet bombed. And Biden isn't just tolerating Israel's bombing campaign, he's bending over backward to enable it. Uh, that's all for us tonight. Uh, thanks to all of you for reading and or listening to the newsletter, and a special thanks to Foreign Exchange's subscribers uh, in, in particular, paid for an exchange of subscribers because it's you who make this newsletter possible. Uh, I couldn't do it without you, so thank you for that. Uh, until next time, take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.